This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today we're in London, and we're going to be talking about the business environment in Europe as companies try to simplify corporate structures, global trade tensions weigh on sentiment, and the tech industry faces increased scrutiny. To talk through this and much, much more, we're joined by Mark Nachman, one of the co-heads of our investment banking division. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jake. So, Mark, let's start with your clients, what you're hearing from them. You are in touch with some of the CEOs of the largest European corporations. How CEO confidence in Europe and how's the sentiment here at the moment? Yes, I'd say CEO confidence remains quite strong in light of strong growth in the U.S. We have recovering growth in Europe and we have a consumer that feels pretty good uh, across the globe. So as a result, Everybody's pretty open-minded to do strategic transactions and think about their businesses. Which industries are particularly buoyant at the moment? Obviously, somewhat varied landscape here in Europe. Growth is still 2%, which is high for Europe, but not incredibly high. So what industries in Europe are feeling particularly confident? And so if I were to point out two, I'd kind of point out healthcare and then the telecom media technology cluster. And so you can call that three or one industries. But I'd say in both of these, there's a lot of strategic things going on with the businesses, lots of different trends going on, which is resulting in in, in a good amount of strategic discussions and then activities as well. So talk a little bit about the M&A environment so far this year. Last year was a little bit subdued. 2015 was a record year. How has activity looked so far this year in Europe? So European M&A activity kind of consistent with global activity, super active. I think in terms of scale, Year-to-date volumes exceed a trillion dollars, which is up almost 50% from last year. So significant activity. And I'll, I'll make a couple points to that. Large transformational deals remain top of mind. So when we look at deals larger than $20 billion, they contribute almost half of the overall volume. So quite significant. 75% of the activity is driven by strategic acquirers. So when you look at companies on a pretty good balance sheet health, they've spent the last few years reducing costs, increasing cash flow. So they have a lot of resources to deploy. And so there's a lot of focus on strategic transactions. At the other hand, you have an increase in hostile and unsolicited activity in Europe as well. And so you see CEOs ready to be more aggressive and more quickly if it doesn't work with very limited negative stigma uh, attached to a failed kind of aggressive deal. So We've seen more of that activity in in Europe, which has been something that we've seen in the U.S. before. And then we have a good amount of uptake in activist activity. That's something, again, that emanated out of the U.S. We've seen it much more frequently in M&A situation in undervalued companies around Europe. And so as a result, lots of companies are working at what-if scenarios or thinking about what should I do before the activist actually shows up. And, And a lot of that has resulted in corporates looking at simplifying structures, streamlining their business mix, and doing transactions based on that. So just to follow up on simplification, what's driving the simplification here in Europe? Is it just a response to activism? Or is it just a somewhat broader trend? I'd say it's a couple things. It's a response primarily to investor feedback that investors are trying to understand what are your key businesses, what's your company about, what's at the core of it, and what that looks like from a kind of streamlined perspective. So I think at the core, it's really around valuation, what's been driving valuation. I think the key to valuations has really become organic growth and just growth in general. And so we've kind of gone through a period where no top-line growth, but lots of work on the margin worked and you know EPS went up 
gone through a period of time where no top line growth but share of purchases and as a result EPS accretion worked. I think we're getting more into a world where it's really growth, growth, growth on the revenue side and having organic growth. And I think that really requires companies to look at their portfolio and really think about what part of their portfolio can generate growth and kind of streamline down to that. Obviously, financial sponsors have been active in the U.S. M&A market, a big part of the USA M&A market for a long time. How does the picture look here? Are financial sponsors getting bigger and bolder here in Europe? Yeah, I'd say they are. I think, look, it's a global phenomenon. I think when you look at that whole world, now let me call it private capital for a second. I'll get into what I mean by that. Activity is basically at an all-time high. About 20% or so of M&A activity comes from that universe. Now, what do I mean by that? That includes traditional PE firms, as you think about it. But then we've seen a lot of crossover buyers that are either infrastructure buyers, some people call it core funds, some people call them you know, low-risk, long-term PE. But what that really gets at is it's a slightly different alternative asset class that looks at very asset-heavy, sustainable models, but is willing to take a lower return, especially in this current interest rate environment, for perceived lower risk. Now, you can debate if it's really lower risk or if it's just PE at a lower return, but there's a whole asset class around that. And then the third element of it is really we're seeing family office, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds growing in relevance on their own. They used to invest through the general partners of these PE firms, and now we see them in a growing sense doing deals on their own without a general partner involved. So they're kind of the other part of that private capital world that is getting quite active. So we've talked a little bit about the positive drivers, the growth of private capital, the confidence CEOs have given worldwide synchronized growth. What's holding people back? What are the negative sentiments that might be leading people to rethink acquisitions or, or any kind of activity? Yeah, good question. I think at any one of time, I think you can come up with a longer list of concerns than positives. Usually the positives outweigh, but let me give you five concerns that are on people's mind. I think the first and foremost over the last few months has really been a kind of trade war. And what does it mean? Nobody seems to exactly know what it means. Lots of questions around the president's negotiating tactics. Uncertainty is obviously not helping the market. It's not necessarily helping confidence, even so it hasn't had a tremendous impact yet because most people in the corporate world and the investor side are still assuming that the negotiations ultimately get to the right place, whatever right place is. And so let's hope this will turn out. But trade war continues to be top of mind, top of mind in almost every client meeting and board meeting that we go to. Second, I'd say, and this has been around for you know most of the year, is the sustainability and duration of the current economic cycle. So we talked about the growth we've had in the U.S., in Europe, you know, how sustainable is it, what inning are we in on the growth cycle, are we at peak asset valuation, how late in the cycle are we? So that's top of mind of our clients. Technological disruption, which is a big topic and is an opportunity and a threat. And so I think it's something where the view is the pace of change is very rapid. I think everybody is thinking about new entrants. People are thinking about the Amazon effect. People are thinking about how do I disrupt myself before somebody else does it to myself? Are there opportunities for my business? And so lots and lots of businesses that have looked stable for a long period of time are now susceptible to getting disrupted. And so I think that is top of mind of every management team. Fourth, cyber threats continue to be at the top of mind. I think it's something that people don't talk about as much, but I think most companies think about it, especially financial institutions, and it's a great worry. And I'd say on the kind of macro level, political stability versus extremism, nationalism, 
including issues like Brexit, I think are other things that worry people as they look at the macro environment. Let's dive a little deeper on Brexit. Obviously, top of mind for a lot of multinationals that operate, obviously, here in London or do business with Europe. Has the whole debate around Brexit and the machinations to date between the EAU and the British government, has that led to any dampening of sentiment? Or how are investors thinking about it? Lots of details are obviously not known. I I think people think September, October will bring much more details, but hard to judge the ultimate impact. Just to put it in a perspective, the UK is the second largest economy in Europe, fifth largest globally. So it's very important. Lots of debate about how this is impacting the UK economy. Has it yet? Will it in the future? I think the one factual fact that people are pointing out is that pre-Brexit, the UK was one of the fastest growing economies in Europe. Now it no longer is. Having said that, when I look at it from our perspective in terms of deal environment, UK M&A deal environment is still quite active, and we haven't seen a real noticeable impact so far on M&A environment in the UK. And there, you know, there's probably lots of reasons for it. There's you know, lots of high-quality international business here. You look at the you know, FTSE 100, a big, big portion of the revenues of the FTSE 100 are not based in the UK. There's lots of very good companies here. There's a good amount of private equity activity, and you have a very transparent, actionable market here. So we haven't seen it in the deal activity yet, but I think we see our clients working on contingency planning. I think they're all very focused on what the final plans are, and it's putting an air of uncertainty around their UK business that they have to handle. How about you? You're running a major European business, uh, Goldman's Investment Bank in the region. Has it changed the way you think about running the business uh, across Europe? It hasn't changed how we've run it yet. I think we have a bunch of contingency plans, as you would expect us to have in place, to think about various scenarios. Very little is actually known about what the impact is really going to be on the financial services industry. And so we're kind of eagerly waiting to see where it actually all finally settles down. But I think we've done some stuff away from Brexit that could potentially help in a Brexit scenario. But we did it not because of Brexit, but more of a general global strategy, which is we've been moving a number of our client coverage people, a number of our capital markets coverage people to the continent. So we've been moving them to Frankfurt, Paris, Madrid, Milan, Stockholm. And I think it's really an effort that is consistent with our global strategy to regionalize a bit more, get closer to clients, be much closer to what's happening, be able to be much more responsive to our clients in an ad hoc fashion, and be part of the community around our clients. So you've seen us do a similar strategy in, yeah, the, we did in, the, that US, in the U.S., yeah. where we opened Seattle, up Atlanta, Seattle, yeah. Dallas, and so yeah. on. And so it's a very similar strategy to have bankers in the regional communities, but also I think even in this digital world, there's still a huge impact of being physically close and being physically able to visit your client's office and provide advice. That is a strategy we've been pursuing. We've probably gone a bit too concentrated in London with our coverage strategy, so we're moving that a bit out. And I think in a potential Brexit scenario, I think that'll be helpful. But I think we're doing this to increase the client connectivity. And the bankers might like it a little less airtime. How about financing? How are European companies looking at financing now? It's traditionally been a big banking market, bank loan market, but has the financing environment look post-financial crisis? Yeah, I think you're right. I think the European market, this is one of the big differences to U.S. market, has historically been super reliant on bank financing. There's obviously a lot of local bank competitors who've been providing that, and the capital markets historically have been a much smaller percentage of corporate's balance sheet. 
And I think that's changed since the financial crisis. We have a much deeper capital market now. We have a deeper capital market going on the investment grade side. On the non-investment grade side, I think you're seeing capital structures moving into more balance between bank lending and capital markets-based lending. But the European market is still behind a good bit. On the U.S. market, I'd say on two things. One is it's still more heavily bank-oriented. And I'd say there's not a big, deep functioning securitization market. So the banks keep holding all these assets on the balance sheet rather than the U.S. where a lot of stuff gets securitized and broadly distributed into the capital markets. So there's still less liquidity, less size, less transparency in the capital markets in Europe. And I think it's something that has an impact on overall growth and ability of capital, certainly growth capital for young companies. And I think it's something that we're going to have to watch out for during this whole Brexit scenario, because that could further deteriorate the size of the capital markets, as that was primarily a UK-based phenomenon. So the banking environment, too, in Europe is still bit fragmented, a lot of national champions, not a lot of pan-European lenders. There's been a lot of talk about trying to address that issue by creating some sort of capital markets union, some steps towards that. How critical is that for real true capital markets union to help European businesses and, and help growth? I think it's still critical. I think that one of the biggest strengths of the U.S. economy is the size of the capital market, the deep size of it the liquidity, the fact that there's lots of early-stage capital available. And I think you see it and what has come about in technology and the companies that have grown up in the U.S. I think it's pretty important for the European environment to keep working towards a broader capital market. And I think that's something that I think we've lost a little bit of steam on because of the Brexit discussion. It's taking a little bit of a backseat. I think a couple of the officials that were responsible for that topic in the EU were UK officials, and so tough for them to continue doing that. Now so they're I'm, busy negotiating trade agreements. Yeah, so I'm a bit worried about about where that's going, but I think it is something that we, we need to continue working in Europe. So a lot of talk over the last months and year or so around tech clash and, and sort of growing sentiment around some of the big tech giants and their sort of ever-presence in our lives. I mean, obviously, there have been Europe some big fines going back a couple of years now against mostly U.S. tech companies. From a banking perspective, what's the current sentiment toward the tech industry as you sit here in London? Look, I think there's generally some regulatory and populist backlash against kind of big tech. And as you said, most of these companies are headquartered in the U.S., I'd say Europe's become more focused on the kind of data protection issue, and you've seen some of the rules getting implemented earlier this year. But there still continue to be some concern around the size and scale of, of some of the bigger tech companies and what pressure and market power they have. We've seen it a little bit in a couple of deals where we've seen some delayed regulatory review, but generally speaking, we have not really seen it in deal activity. And generally speaking, I'd say that tech world in Europe is actually in a good place where we've seen a number of large, globally successful uh, European companies. We've seen the IPO market for tech companies to be wide open, especially this year. And we've seen a pretty active private equity market supporting especially the software space and the kind of fintech space, e-commerce, and kind of gaming. And so I think we see a good number of tech companies getting started, getting supported here. Having said that, Compared to what we've seen in the U.S. and what we've seen in China recently, 
we've not seen the mega mega tech companies getting created in Europe and so we haven't seen something of the order of you know 100 billion dollar plus market cap companies getting created in recent years in the European market so it could be based on funding environment and there's lots of examples of European tech entrepreneurs going to the US yeah the great funding. great tech entrepreneurs coming to the US yeah. if you talk about innovation more broadly in Europe is it a question of not having the right entrepreneurial spirit sometimes. Americans talk about the lack of that spirit, or is it really a function of different kind of capital markets? The capital markets are a big part of it because we have a whole slew of Europeans who've gone to the U.S., raised money there, and have had the entrepreneurial spirit. And so they obviously grew up in Europe and got that entrepreneurial spirit, but they felt the need to come to the U.S. market to get capitalized. So I think that's part of it. I think some people talk about kind of a culture of being able to fail and is it easier to fail in places other than Europe and more okay? And then you start the next thing and lots of studies around entrepreneurs having failed before, before they hit the big thing. And so it's a number of factors. There's obviously lots of smart, super well-educated people. There's some great universities here. So I think there's a lot of ingredients available. But I think the capital markets definitely play a role in it. And there may be some other cultural factors. So you grew up in Europe, moved to the U.S. for a big chunk of your career. Now you're back in Europe. What are the differences? What stands out from you in terms of the operating environment as you've seen both markets over the years? Generally, the two markets, when I compare the U.S. and Europe, are getting more similar than they've probably been 10, 15 years ago. I think from a competitive perspective, you got the same U.S. banks playing here, as we have in the U.S., but we got a lot of uh, local champions in each of the markets. I think as we've talked about, the capital markets are less developed here, and so I think it requires some more creativity and ingenuity around uh, some of the situations, but that makes it also interesting and, and fun. I'd say I got here in, in a great time. I got back here right after the French election, and so a lot of business enthusiasm, certainly on the continent, and a good bit of increased growth. So it's been a very positive environment. It's been fun to be back. So you've also had a lot of roles at Goldman um, before your role running the investment bank with John Waldron and Greg Lemkow. You ran the financing group. You co-headed Global Natural Resources, and you also ran Latin America. As you've moved around the firm, what, what are some of the things that all those leadership roles have had in common, and what's been different? I've always been kind of intellectually curious about how all these businesses fit together. We've got a lot of great businesses at the firm. Our clients have pretty diverse and complex needs. So I kind of like to figure out how to unlock all of this experience, knowledge, thought leadership within the firm to help our clients solve their biggest challenges. And so by moving around between different products, time zones, divisions, it's helped me complete the picture in my mind and allowed me to show the clients the best of Goldman Sachs. So I think that's been a fun 20-plus year career so far, and I'm hoping that I can continue to learn more. <laughs> so uh, having spent 20 years here, what advice do you give to the folks who are joining the firm today? We just recently had the new analyst class come in. What kind of advice do you give people who are just starting their careers here? Yeah, and I had a session with those guys uh, uh, last week. And look, I think in, in my mind, this is an experience-based business. And so I try to always tell, tell young people joining the firm, you know, try to be as broad-minded as you can. You work on a deal, you work on a transaction, you can kind of look at your job very narrow and just kind of do what somebody tells you to do and stay within your, your lane. Or you can kind of look broader, see what the guys in different product areas, different groups, different geography, different divisions do. And kind of try to, as best as you can in the limited time that you have, learn a little bit of what they do as well to get as broad of an experience as you can. So that's usually the advice I give to young people starting out. All right, Mark, thanks for joining us today. 
Thank you, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on August 2nd, 2018. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.